What up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of the Comrades Classroom Podcast. On this episode, we sit down with Malik, a member of the Revolutionary Abolition Movement, who is one of the authors of Burning Down the American Plantation. They're also joined by their comrade and fellow educator, Christy. They guide us through some important conversations about revolutionary abolition, the inevitable societal collapse under capitalism, and the necessity of survival. To support RAM, visit revolutionaryabolition.org to purchase a copy of the book or to make a standard donation. As always, if you fuck with the political education work we're doing, kick over a few bucks every month at patreon.com backslash the people's fund. It's the only way we can continue this work and keep feeding people in our community. Free the people, free the land. Excuse me, everyone, I have a brief announcement to make. Jesus was black, Ronald Reagan was the devil, and the government is lying about 9-11. Thank you for your time, and good night. Having that dream where you made the white people riot, weren't you? But I was telling the truth. How many times have I told you you better not even dream about telling white folk the truth? You understand me? Shoot. Making white people riot. You better learn how to lie like me. I'm going to find me a white man and lie to him right now. I am the stone that the builder refused. I am the visual, the inspiration that made ladies sing the blues. I'm the spark that makes your idea bright. The same spark that lights the dark so that you can know your left from your right. I am the ballad in your box, the bullet in the gun, the inner glow that lets you know to call your brother's son. The story that just begun, the promise of what's to come. And I'm going to remain a soldier till the war is won. Okay, we are incredibly excited to have two very interesting people with us today, um, Malik and Christy. Uh, I will let you guys introduce yourselves in one second. Uh, first, I'll, I'll introduce myself. My name is Gabe. Uh, that's spelled G-A-B-E. Um, and now, if either one of you would like to get started, just introduce yourself, um, tell, tell us your name um, and how to spell it, and we can get going from there. Okay, well, I'm Malik, N-A-L-I-K. Um, I'm a member of RAM in uh, New York City. I'm uh, also one of the authors of the um, Burn Down American Plantation text. And um, yeah, I'm happy to be here and to talk about like, um, what's going on in the world and where we need to, where I'd like to see us go as a movement. Thank you for that, comrade. Hey, y'all. My name is Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y, pronouns uh, he, him. Uh, I am uh, an autistic anarchist uh, base builder and organizer. Um, for this call, I will not be claiming any direct affiliation to RAM, but I do work alongside uh, its members and am very supportive of all aspects of its project. And I am very excited, like my comrade, to discuss with you the sort of present situation where we are and where we would like to try and go. Thank you for having us. 
Thank you both so much for joining. Um, I, I just personally, to like geek out a little bit, uh, Burn Down the American Plantation is like, was like a very transformational book uh, for myself, text for myself reading. Um, it was some really fabulous analysis in there. Um, and just like personally speaking, it was, it was one of the more important things that I've read. So it's uh, my own little piece of geeking. Um, <laughs> thank you okay let's uh let's hop in real fast um so can can you both describe your own personal uh process of radicalization um and what what that means to you um either one of you if you'd like to jump in and start Okay, I mean, I guess I could start first, but um, I guess uh, where should I start? Um, so I grew up in uh New York City in um in the eighties and nineties, and um, I guess you could say that the uh, social and political situation in the city at that time kind of helped shape my view of things. Um, New York was a lot different than it is today. Um, back in the eighties and nineties, the city was really ravaged from the uh the crack co cocaine epidemic, um, uh, mass incarceration was like a full, it was in full swing. Um, the, also the streets in general were a lot more violent than they are today. Um, which it's it, the culture of the period, it birthed a lot of like really interesting things from the punk rock with a CBGB, which was like a place that like I used to frequent. And then, um, like hip hop, there's all, there's a huge culture that everyone knows that was built around from the kind of misery that was in the streets, but also there's a lot of creativity that spawned from that. And uh, that was kind of, that was like the environment that helped um, spawn, I guess, my radicalization a bit. So um, just growing up in that kind of context. And then um, eventually I discovered a lot of literature, um, like reading, reading Malcolm X was like pretty transformational for me. Well, extremely transformational for me. Um, then reading George Jackson, um, Soul of That Brother, but then I also started discovering um, things like Chomsky and about Nestor Makhno and uh, the Spanish Revolution. And uh, I also got really deep into studying about anti-colonial struggles like uh, the Sandinista Revolution and Carlos Fonseca and uh, Che Guevara and Subcomandante Marcos. And uh, all these things kind of like start hitting combat once. But I think a lot of that came also from like uh, the cultural influences of like learning about like, uh, like say like 5% or ideology, just learning about stuff from like the streets in New York, kind of like a, uh, pushed me in a direction to want to learn more. Um, and then when the Seattle uprising in 99 happened, I was, uh, I wouldn't say I considered myself an anarchist at the time, but it was really um, influential. And, uh, you know, I saw the black block. And I was like, what the hell is this? It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then, um, a few years later during the Iraq wars, when I first started participating in uh, anarchist oriented things. And from then on, I've kind of been, uh, considered myself an anarchist and I've participated in a lot of things. Yep. Thank you so much. That that was incredible. Thank you, Christy. Yeah. So thank you um, uh, for allowing me the space. So it, it, it's I I am not one who who really likes to talk about themselves too terribly much. Um, I will say that my radicalization process followed a trajectory um, that was uh, longer 
um, in its duration. Uh, I also want to add that, you know, speaking personally, I, I I don't think it's it's the most correct way of talking about radicalization to use, you know, it in the past tense, I have radicalized or I radicalized. Um, yeah. For me, it's uh, it's it's an ongoing and dynamic and constantly occurring process. And my my sort of uh, sort of knee jerk response to kind of take a couple of steps back when I, when I hear it, um, isn't isn't something that always happens, but it comes sort of out of my own process of radicalization and things that I've I've left behind. So I you know, was uh, born and raised in a very conservative, um, very, very conservative ultra-reactionary part of California. And there was a lot of, a lot of hardship, a lot of struggle, a lot of need that I saw, um, you know, losing friends and things like that, um, even in high school and the like. And I, I remained convinced that somehow working within the system, even as I read things, and at that point I wasn't reading a whole lot of radical literature, I was just trying to trying to understand the world and, and the ways that were most immediately present to me, I was still convinced that working within the system at that point was somehow a feasible way of trying to make some kind of difference, although I was also working with um, local organizations that were not a part or didn't imagine themselves as a part of the system as such, like food not bombs and things of that nature, um, which was, uh, I, I count uh, as being a more sort of... Um, meaningful and impactful uh, force on my radicalization process in a very positive way. Um, and from there, as I continued to try and, and look for answers, um, I found you know, the radical left perspective. Um, I initially uh, was drawn to anarchism, but uh, there wasn't really a lot of activity um, that I could find where I was. Um, I became involved in, in uh, what I consider now um, authoritarian Marxist organizing. I was never a Stalinist, but um, I was a Trotskyist, a little orthodox Trotskyist, um, and a lot of my work was in that milieu, um, and it is uh, dissatisfaction with that milieu, and a sympathy towards anarchism that never left, an interest in anarchism that never left, that, that moved me out of authoritarian circles and into the expressly anarchist spaces uh, where I am most at home and where I think there is the most revolutionary potential now. So I could say more about other things um, that I've done, but I prefer, I think, to kind of stop it there. I'm happy to answer clarifying questions or anything like that. Uh, wow, for real, I, I appreciate um, both of you coming in and sharing what you did with us, uh, your own processes ongoing of radicalization. Um, really, uh, for me, kind of shed a lot of light on uh, how unique, unique and nuanced all of this stuff is. Uh, uh, and thank you for 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 sharing that story with uh, with all of us. Um, I think maybe now we can speak about, uh, or maybe maybe you can tell us about the uh, the political necessity of uh, revolutionary abolition. Okay. Yeah, I could uh, talk about that a little bit. Um, well, with the text, we're trying to. Um, we wanted to serve a few purposes. One um, was we want to like ground uh, the revolutionary tradition in the country back in the idea of abolitionism from like the 19th century in that like, um, how should I put it? That the process, the process of enslavement of uh, black people in this country had never really ended. So that that same kind of abolitionist struggle that was really um, at the forefront, but back in the day in the 19th century really needed to continue. And, um, we saw the lineage of the Panthers and the Black Liberation Army as like um, what should that was the most successful political projects um, in the 20th century fighting against um, the system of slavery and 
race, systematic racism. So we wanted to highlight those and look at how the anarchist movement could learn lessons from that and put uh, these struggles at the core of its, uh, of its focus. Um, we had a bunch of other really important ideas along with this. So in that, like, I feel that like, how should I put this, that the um, movement right now in the U S there's a split between what could be viewed as more revolutionary uh, minded, like organizations and individuals and groups and more like reformist minded ones. It's like almost like, but it's not necessarily between anarchists versus the left as opposed to their tendencies within all of these different tendencies that are pushing and pulling in different ways like that. And we want to draw a really firm line, a pro-revolutionary line that was for like the overthrow and establishment of the overthrow of the system and the establishment of uh, truly revolutionary autonomous collectives that are tied in with the larger internationalist movement. Um, so this is why we drew on places like Rojava and the Zapatistas and other places that have been liberated or were fighting for liberation and uh, drawing all these like anti-authoritarian strains and trying to figure out how we could learn lessons from say the BLA to um, the Yipaga and what we could take away from that. Um, we also felt there's a lot of examples from like the Black Liberation Army that like people really seem to have one either never learned or totally forgotten. And uh, we felt that that was like a really, it was one of the most successful insurgency against the US government. And there was like a, great like strengths from that but also like a lot of pitfalls but a lot of, it seems that like people haven't actually studied that to the degree necessary and um judging from the political climate now it seems really important that like uh people should revisit that so we really want to highlight that in the text um and towards the end of the text for for the burn down text we had uh several main points five points but we also want to um Acknowledge that that isn't like a concrete blueprint, but we're making suggestions for things that like for, uh, you know, um, strategic objectives that people could work towards. But those things always kind of have to remain fluid, judging on the political situation of the time. So um, I know a lot of people kind of felt that it was like maybe a little bit too formalist. And um, I think people kind of often shy away from making formalized things because like when they fear being critiqued and also sometimes those things become outdated. But like we just want to posit something that was like could push the movement in a certain direction, and um, to some degree, I think the text was pretty successful um, in bringing abolition back to the forefront. Um, not to say that the text only that we're the only ones who did that. Other people were talking about abolition, so we're um, we're part of a trend that was going on. We just want to add our voices to that same uh, push for black anarchism and for uh, abolition. Um, one thing that was definitely that it proved to be a uh, pretty correct was that I think it was one of the first texts around that time that was talking about uh, an impending civil war in the country. And that seems to have become like, uh, if you hear it everywhere now, everyone's realized that that's um, very likely what's on the horizon. And uh, if we're paying, we're in the streets a lot during Black Lives Matter, the first incarnation. Um, and it became clear that this conflict was probably going to escalate. So that's, uh, I think why we had some foresight into that, but um, yeah. I guess that's a longer, a long explanation about revolutionary abolition, but we think that for the future and going forward, that the um, anarchist movement and other tendencies really need to have abolition at the focal point, abolishing the slave system. The fact that we have a system of slavery, that we have a network of concentration camps along the border is, uh, I mean, it's such a heinous atrocity that like, um, it really needs to 
take all of our attention. And then from there, I think we can expand further and take on other systems of oppression. But yeah, that's, that's it, I guess. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that answer. Thank you so much. Um, just just to sort of like echo your own sentiments, uh, I'll say in our own political education uh, environment, uh, the the research and study we've been doing into the BLA and, and organizing principles, uh, that shit's been really, really important, um, mm-hmm. fundamental and, and sort of like reimagining as we move forward, what, what stuff looks like. Uh, so yeah. thank you. Um, uh, Christy, uh, spinning that question back around to you um, and like telling us about what uh, the, the political necessity of revolutionary abolition. Sure. So, you know, a, a lot of this would be echoing um, sentiments that, that my comrade expressed um, Reading Burned Down was uh, a profoundly transformational experience for me as well. Um, you know, it was something that, that came at a, at a really crucial time um, as I was sort of thinking through, you know, my relationships to different parts of, of the movements in which I was fortunate enough to be involved. Um, for me, um, first of all, I think the notion of, of, of revolutionary abolition is essential precisely because, as, as the comrade has said, right, it, it, it allows us to kind of reframe the modern oppression of the carceral state as a part of a longer duration of a white supremacist settler colonialist tendency that has never left and, and that continues to, to cause very real and very serious harm that is compounded by additional harm. Um, that being said, the focus on the putative apparatus of the state, in particular, the prisons, the jails, um, I, I have always found particularly a positive because I feel that if we're talking about trying to think about what fascism would look like were it here, we don't really have to expend a lot of energy beyond simply trying to understand the prison industrial complex, beyond trying to understand the pain, the agony, the horror baked into um, this, this carceral web of pain and suffering that spans across the so-called United States on the land stolen from you know, indigenous people you know, uh, centuries ago. And not only that, but I, for me, it was also about trying to um, create a kind of hard boundary because that phrase abolition, not unlike phrases like mutual aid or phrases like direct action or phrases like that, are phrases that, that mean things and there's a there can, there can be a lot of debate and discussion about those things but there are some aspects of that discussion that need to be understood as closed right these are agreed upon principles at least for the purposes of trying to build something in the moment to fight back against the moment or at least parts of the moment right so for me there, there was no more seeking any kind of reconciliation with the system, but it's not enough to simply say we want to abolish the prisons, we want to abolish the police, absolutely, without question. But for me, it goes it goes all the way up. It is abolishing any and all forms of governance. It is abolishing the complete and total presence of the white supremacist capitalist state as such. And because I do not believe personally that you can really say you oppose white supremacy if you in any way support the activity of the state. The capitalist state has been white supremacist before it was capitalist. It has been settler colonialist. It still has those trends and tendencies ingrained so deeply within every part of it. If you stand against white supremacy, you must be anti-state, you must be anti-government, and you must take that position unequivocally and without apology, at least in my thinking. Yeah, I second all that. 
Definitely. Damn, that was heat. Wow. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. That wow. So you you both mentioned um, in, in speaking about the political necess- necessity of revolutionary abolition, uh, like this current moment, uh, this current political moment. So, like, what? Like, in your opinion, can we take from, like, this recent uprising and how can we respond to this current political moment? Um, Malik, maybe you want, you want to hop on that first? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, we view, like, the George Floyd uprising as probably one of the, well, almost definitely the most important uprising events of our time so far. Um, in my lifetime, definitely. Um, one thing, when they, with the, uh, with the precinct and the was it the fourth precinct, fifth precinct? I forget the number, but um, third precinct. Third precinct. That was it. I knew it was one of those numbers. But when that was overran, that was one of the most beautiful moments in my life. I couldn't believe it. Um, we're not really used to seeing that kind of thing happen here, and with that kind of momentum and uh, fury. Um, and then the way New York City exploded, that wasn't something that um, I think anyone here was prepared to see. Um, that uh, it was, for instance, in New York, the police are used to. Um, they're very way more hands-on than other places because, like, we have almost forty thousand cops here, um, and it's way that's way more than most other cities. Um, and they other cities often shoot like tear gas and projectiles and stuff at people, and they keep things like people at a distance. In New York, they kind of like to run up on you and like really like fight with you very hands-on. So it was um, here they were really um, people met them with such force that they were, it was strange seeing them cower and flee the way they did. And they completely retreated from the uh, momentum in the streets. And that led to the uh, looting in, um, in the city in Manhattan. And um, it also like all of Brooklyn was littered with torch police cars. They were all hunkered down their precincts, cowering for their lives and stuff. It was one of the greatest moments I've ever seen. The pushback was really, was really um, remarkable. Uh, one thing that I'd like to definitely state, though, is that the movement, I don't want to say this about the entire country, you know, I would generally, generally say this is probably true for most of the country, but the revolutionary movement in the country was totally unprepared for it. And um, so most of the momentum came from the streets speaking for themselves, which is the way it should be. But the movement should have been able to respond and push things further than than it went. Um in a way, I would argue that some of the looting was almost an effect of people not having too much like political direction of what to do. And that's not to critique looting. I think looting is a great thing and should always be encouraged and endorsed and supported. Um, but it just seemed that like for a certain amount of time, people were kind of wandering aimlessly without like uh, like any strategic direction. And that, I think, was a lack of the movement being um, capable of pushing things further. Um, so it was like a possibility to actually carve out autonomous zones for revolution in the U.S. that um, it was attempted in certain places, but it was uh, it clearly didn't. You know, it should have went further than it did. Um, one thing I think we could also see is uh, um, the strength of the state's disciplining and counterinsurgent institutions and like other people in uh, groups that are involved in that process. And um, so there's like the. Uh, so-called black leadership that comes into co-ops after when the movement is really at its forefront. You saw people like rappers, like the dude Killer Mike, he came up and told everyone to go home and don't burn down Atlanta when he was making songs about waterboarding police, which was 
you know, it's a remarkable betrayal. Um, you see all these other groups, these people like Tamika Mallory, all these people came in and did what they could to co-opt it and make profit and in effect put it, bring everyone back into their homes so that people would stay out of the streets and things would go back to the, to the status quo. Um, in a way, a lot of the activist groups in New York specifically, and because uh, a lot of them are really tied with NGOs, but a lot of the uh, people that are viewed as movement people in the city are actually part and parcel of the counterinsurgent apparatus. And that's not to say that there's like a conspiracy and that the people are talking in some dark, shadowy room. It's just that the way that they are prone to operating is so counter to the way the streets maneuver and operate that when most of them came out and did their rituals that they're familiar with, it was almost like the police were happy to go back to the rituals that they knew. And it also was so alienating the streets that it kind of helped um, deflate the potential that had existed. Um, so that, that's like a kind of lesson I think we need to learn from that. So uh, one important part is I think that people need to form like crews, defense crews, uh, organizations, that have the capacity to act next time something like this happens. So we're not caught off guard. Um, we probably need to develop more intransigent politics that don't lend themselves for co-opting. Like uh, today, it seems that like there's like a lot of like, uh, how should I put this? That there's like with the internet clout chasing kind of, uh, there are so many people chasing like uh, career opportunities and like a lot of the people who put themselves as the faces of the movement and the loudest voices are often the people who are doing the least or non, no organizing whatsoever. So they kind of like a lot of people kind of take a voice for the movement that ends up really pacifying it. So we kind of, I feel like um, people who are really organizing need to develop a kind of intransigent politics that can't really be co-opted that the that the Washington Post and all these other places won't want to put out there because it would be like a, you know, detrimental to their existence. Um, I also think people need to study revolutionary organizations that have had success. Um, and not even like anarchist ones, um, communist ones, but in like learn lessons in, uh, and problems and learn, learn from what they've been through. Like there's like, once again, the Sandinista revolution, there's a lot to learn from that. Um, the Zapatistas, the Haitian revolution, Vietnam, uh, Thomas Sankara and, uh, or the ANC is another example. Um, there are groups like revolutionary struggle and this other group called the organization, uh, for uh, revolutionary self-defense in Greece. These are all like groups that like, I think if people studied more deeply, we would kind of be able to uh, maybe act accordingly when the time was, when it, when it mattered. But um, yeah, again, the George Floyd thing, I think was definitely the most important thing that's, that's come about in, in forever in recent U.S. history. But also I think pushed the right in a way that like people also weren't expecting. So like the battle lines are kind of drawn now. And um. I guess I could talk about that more a little bit. Maybe uh, my comrade would like to add a few things too. Maybe. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, cool, cool. Uh, sorry to put I, you on the spot like that. that, is, that is, <laughs> it's no problem. At all. <laughs> yeah. um, no problem at all. So, um, if, I, if I'm being totally honest, and, and this might sound like an exaggeration, um, but there was a moment when I saw film of the third precinct, when I saw photographs of the third precinct, and I, honest to God, couldn't process what I was seeing. It was so unlike anything I had seen before. I, I, I didn't want to allow myself to believe it. 
And and when I could, the the, the sheer weight of it, it, it was it was at once just really, really heavy and powerful because the the, the, the sort of even like the most the most uh, uh, tenuous tendrils of like the revolutionary implications of that were already beginning to show. Not that that act in and of itself was not profoundly radical and revolutionarily transformative, but that on top of, and this isn't to say that I've studied the LA uprising significantly, the, the, the uprising that took place in the early nineties or the, you know, the rebellions in, in, in earlier areas, areas I should say like Watts and what have you all too extensively, but seeing this, this amazing combination, um, albeit from afar of, of both being able to mount um, an effective strategic response over time, but also to allow that response to be able to be movable, right? Mm-hmm. It was dynamic and also more immediately responsive to the machinations of the state as it attempted to quell the uprising and subdue it. There was, there was a level of capacity there that was, that was profoundly profoundly inspiring to me. And, and I don't mean that in some, in some dry state liberal way, this, this seemed to be the stuff of, of revolutionary work. And I, I, I was happy to, to be, you know, some small part of it in any way that I could. Um, I will say that this, this threat of, you know, the current political moment, right, is, is an interesting one because from the very beginning, we were already seeing, um, as my comrade mentioned, you know, liberal, and I would also add, you know, authoritarian co-optation of, yeah. of these movements of this energy, right? So you had individuals who were who were pretending to represent the entire community. You had liberal organizations who were parroting the rhetoric of, of a more legitimately revolutionary position. You had liberal, and at the same time, they were they were collaborating with police and, and telling them where their demonstrations were going to be and what the march route was and what their intentions were. Uh, and then, of course, you had these these really really cynical attempts to effectively recruit into. Um, organizations that have been moribund for years, in my opinion, if not decades, and have never really been outward facing. And it was it was very, very clear to me, speaking personally, that any any claim to relevance that some of these, you know, more classic or even some of the newer sort of authoritarian formations that profess to be more legitimately revolutionary um, really have no foundation from which they can legitimately make those claims, the arguments that they were advancing, the quote-unquote strategies or quote-unquote tactics they were arguing for, if, if you want to call them that, were, were the straight-off-the-rack, one-size-fits-all bullshit that, that really amounted to some kind of like cynical, tanky mad lib where you were taking out nouns and replacing nouns that were more relevant to the particular moment, but you weren't actively building anything on the ground. And in fact, some of these folks were the most hesitant to, to more militantly engage. Um, so I will say that this in particular was a painful irony for me precisely because if you adopt a vanguardist position, if you insist that you are the most militant, the most revolutionary, the most uh, politically correct in your perspectives, those perspectives should carry weight. Those perspectives should have an impact. Those perspectives should do something. And these organizations weren't. I think there were ideas that these organizations you know, tried to capture. And you know, my comrade has mentioned some of the, the, the revolutionary um, legacies that, that Ram is built on and that we as individuals also sort of build our own work. Um, but this is, not, this is not that. And we have to talk about that as, as a part of that kind of insurgency, that sort of classic three-way fight between the capitalist state, between fascists, and between a cynical authoritarian cloud chasers, um, some of whom can do real damage uh, if and when they go out into the real world and put people at serious risk. Um, I also think 
right? That that what needs to happen, right? Is that we we've seen we've seen the escalation. I mean, there's there's no question about it, right? In in Upland and Yukaipa, for example, you had right um, individuals training uh, firearms on protesters, right? In Norco, you had you know. Uh, unapologetically affiliated Nazi MCs brandishing knives, um, threatening all sorts of physical violence um, towards people. We've seen we've seen that violence enacted in areas like Huntington Beach and elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? So that we know, we know that that there was already this sort of uh, uh, arraying of forces on the side of reaction, on the side of counter-revolution that was made up of both these overtly fascist formations that were able to hide in the the, the sort of more mainstream uh, sort of paleoconservative politics that were finding a very, very uncomfortable entree into um, being able to frustrate um, the more revolutionary components of our organizing through collaborating in some ways mm-hmm. with these liberal organizations, as well as um, yeah. filling the role of the police themselves when the police uh, could not or felt that they did not want to put themselves in harm ways because the pigs were terrified here too. They mm-hmm. absolutely were. I, I've never seen abject fear like that in a pig's face, staring them down. Like it's it, it was it was a beautiful beautiful thing. But what happened as a result, right, is that as my comrade has mentioned, you know, there was there was a kind of shift in the sort of tectonics of state oppression, such that we are seeing. Uh, a sort of realignment of forces that is deeply disturbing and requires a legitimately, I would say, revolutionary response that encompasses uh, learning how to defend ourselves, developing capacity to do so, and defend our neighbors in a way that is meaningful and sustainable, and that allows us to create spaces to allow our survival programs to support people, to allow us to grow those autonomous collectives that we talk about. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, you got anything to add that was that was amazing no i mean i think that was uh we could leave it there <laughs> so i think that leads us actually right into our next topic too which is uh and i know you you bridge we're bridging right into this as well malik is like the uh both of, of your thoughts on this impending sort of civil war and societal collapse okay yeah well like I said, in the text, in the burn down text, we like highlighted that the um, that the civil war in this country was never really resolved, and um, I think the right, I think everybody actually realizes that now. I don't think it's like even a controversial statement anymore. But um, I think with the speed with which it's uh, come to us is uh, pretty startling for a lot of people. But um, yeah, I know we're living in like such a transformative time for the world, not even just for the U.S. That like, it's kind of hard to grasp the uh, seriousness with which we need to act. Um, it's like so many crises at once that it's like when it's so mammoth. So you have like the pandemic that is uh, it's ravaging the world. It's clear that in other kind of, in like India right now, in Brazil, even in New York, there are all these new variants that have like a potential to even maybe evade these vaccines, which means that we might be in this like kind of this problem for like years to come. Um, It's also really clear that the uh, global elites and the people in power haven't actually learned any lessons from this, which is like kind of shocking. And that like, it seems that most of this, this, that these these, uh, viruses are coming from environmental destruction and from um, humans encroaching into nature in really callous and ridiculous ways, but mm-hmm. nobody really wants to actually act on um, 
changing human behavior. People just want to um, go back to normal, which normal is what led to this whole catastrophe. Um, on top of that, we see that with, uh, well, since the 70s, the U.S., its position as a global hegemon has been deteriorating. Um, with Bush, uh, the Bush Jr., with his uh, reckless invasion of Iraq that really starts snowballing, um, with uh, Trump coming into power, it's kind of like an irreversible uh, collapse now. So it's like the U.S. political project, its, it's capacity to, to project power abroad is pretty much, I wouldn't say it's done, but it's like it's a country that nobody respects and no one wants to emulate. So that means that the world is going to be in for a really huge change soon. And um, what that means for us, it's not really clear. But what is clear is that um, the process, the the idea that we have like a functioning democratic society, nobody really believes that anymore. And most people don't even seem to care or want any part of it, which gives us a lot of room to move. So um, since the country has discredited itself so radically to its own population, that gives us a, a capacity to pose an alternative and to act on it. Um, now, the right wing, I think, actually, like Trump, in a way, kind of understands what we were doing better than Biden and the Democrats, and that he's like, these anti-fascist people, they don't like any of us, they want to overthrow all of us. It's like, he's correct. And the Democrats don't really want to come to terms with that. But it's like, most people don't want <laughs> You know, it's like something he actually got right that Biden and the Democrats don't seem to wrap their heads around. But and that's not just our position. Most people don't have any respect for any of them. So, um, yeah, so we're living in this position where the uh, fascists in the right wing are really militarized. And I think they realize that um, black people, uh, the left, the Latinos, we're not going to take the kinds of oppression that have been that they've enacted on us for the last few centuries and people finally had enough. And so they realized that that will probably revolt result in a clash or several clashes. And, um, the, in a situation like that, we should prepare to, uh, make sure that we succeed and can actually liberate people. And that like, it's our historical duty to make sure that people when they're in revolt and when they're struggling for better lives, that we're on their side and we push to make the world as great a place as possible. Um, there was kind of like a debate in the anarchist milieu. It was like, uh, it wasn't explicit, but people were saying that like, you know, we should, uh, avoid symmetrical warfare, which was kind of a straw man in that like, no anarchists are calling for symmetrical war or civil war in general. It's these things kind of happen due to when, when contradictions become intolerable. And it's our role as revolutionaries to make sure those intolerable contradictions really expand to the point that we can actually make change. So it's not really our role to, uh, say, be peaceniks or be like, we need to uh, return back to a state of normalcy where um, where we can struggle in ways that are familiar. But we have to stand next to people when they're in prison, where they're elsewhere, and fight side by side with them. Um, one thing I'd also like to mention, there's uh, a text that came out a few months ago by um, an anarchist guerrilla in Greece, named Dimitri, so I'm going to massacre his last name. It's like Chavisiliadis or something. I probably really massacred that. But he's a persecuted guerrilla who's um, on the run, and he wrote a text. He was in a group called Organization of Revolutionary Self-Defense. And he wrote a text about Michael Reinald, which I think is one of the best texts about the uprising. Um, and I think, yeah, everyone should definitely 
check it out. But one thing that he addressed that I would, that kind of like speaks to some of the things we put out was that uh, he said that um, Macno, when he was in exile and they had their De, De Lo Truda group, that they said that the defense of the revolution was one of the um, first things revolutionary organizations need to do. It's a day one problem is what they called it. And that um, if you don't prepare for that period before you're actually fighting, then you're going to be caught off guard and you're going to lose when it matters. Um, He also highlighted in that text that um, the Yipaga and I should say the larger Kurdish movement, that they developed a strategy in 2010 that highlighted the guerrilla as one of the main um, main, uh, participants in revolution, but also to develop civil defense organizations, autonomous ones within society that are autonomous from, from political parties. Uh, we thought that tied in really well with Russell Maroon Schultz's uh, black, he who is a black liberation army fighter. And he wrote a text called black fighting formations where he was saying that the Panthers and the BLA, that they're one of their biggest failures was that they didn't have a strategy militant slash military strategy for a uh, conflict before they start organizing. So they're kind of just thrown into it. And that um, kind of eventually he said led to their, their uh, failures, their demise in the end. So if you look at all these different like historical trends from like semi-authoritarian to anarchist to uh, black liberation, a lot of these people who had serious like uh, who really seriously fought all kind of came to a similar conclusion. And um, I fear that a lot of radicals in this country aren't actually learning those lessons and that like it's times like this where we really have to uh, prepare and network. And I don't mean like prepare as in like, you know, be some kind of like a uh, right-wing guy in the woods in <laughs> some crazy training camp. But we do have to prepare how to move when it matters. And now is the time to do it since it's clear that the situation is only going to get more stark, uh, worse, and way more conflictual in the near term. So, yeah, that's why I think we are with the idea of, like, the coming collapse. It's no telling what's really going to happen because it's so unstable, but it's within that chaos there's our, uh, there's opportunity. That's I'll leave it there. Hey, I I really appreciate that. That was that was great. I, that um, that reference to to Schultz, I I thought as well was uh, was really interesting. Um, so spinning this back to you, Christy, uh, maybe what are what are some of of your thoughts on? Uh, the impending civil war and societal collapse and, and also like thinking of the civil war too, through that, that burning, burning down the American plantation perspective that this never really ends. Right. I, I think that for me, and there, there is a fair amount that, that can be said. Uh, so hopefully this will make linear sense and it, it won't go on for too terribly long, but I think there is a way in which um, not simply in the mainstream uh, political or historical narrative, around um, abolition and by extension of the civil war even in even in circles who you know who I would say take the do more to take the more radical revolutionary implications of abolition um, and, and you know apply them both as an historical fact and sort of theoretical concept to sort of frame present struggle um, what is often overlooked I think is that it, it, or how the civil war is treated is as this kind of discrete thing that happened. And, and yes, that's that's true. The Civil War happened. But Civil War, no capital C, no capital W, is also a type of conflict. And I would I would I would argue, right, that 
I mean, not in much the same way that that my position has always been that the prison system is, albeit a very slow moving one, nonetheless a, a, a racially motivated genocide campaign um, on the order of you know the wildest imaginings of the most unapologetically rabid, hate filled fascist. Um, you know, there there is a way in which the civil war has remained ongoing. Right. The issue is that oftentimes, right, that that gets overlooked in part because of that sort of myopia in the mainstream view. Right. You see it, I would argue, perhaps I don't mean to speak for the comrade who was of an age where they were, be, where they were able to be more active in these particular these particular milieus. Right. But in the 80s and 90s, where you had this really disturbing resurgence uh, of, you know, uh, openly neo-Nazi and white supremacist organizations, um, you know, uh, things of that nature. Right. It, it was harder to ignore that. Mm-hmm. And it became easier to ignore. And we're at a yeah. now where it's harder to ignore that and it's still hard to ignore it. Right. So I think I think that's I think that's the key difference. I do think, you know, I, like my comrade, I think that the pandemic, I mean, the conversations that I was having one on one with folks, not even in my political life about about the pandemic and, and what it showed about the realities of, of capitalist exploitation, of, of, of the, the manifold lies that make up the neoliberal project, right? I mean, it, it, it was, it was uh, these people were making, you know, uh, anti-authoritarian, revolutionary, um, anarchist arguments, what I would call those types of arguments, on their own, simply by virtue of their experience, right? Like, mm-hmm. it was so much easier to have these conversations and, and it, it seemed much more reasonable because I think this, 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 uh, this recognition of the manifold failings of the state happening all at once seemed to open up for folks this like endless vista of possibility where where yeah. were actually options, where a lot of things were actually on the table. And I certainly think there was something there that definitely added fuel to the fire of the uprising that we've that we've spoken about earlier. But all of that is 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 not to say, or all of that should be said with with also acknowledging that, you know, uh, and I really want to go back to what my comrade said earlier here, right? That this, you know, the, the so-called organized left or the radical left or what have you, right? Um, we were we were not fully prepared by any stretch of the imagination. And it it should be seen, and you know, one of the things I appreciated about the organization that is RAM um, is that they recognized that that was a failure and they actively sought to correct it and are seeking to correct it. And it is not done for the purpose of being a vanguard. It is not done for the purpose of being able to, to you know, step into the role of cop once the hands are on the lever of state power. It's about creating and sustaining a legitimately revolutionary situation by opening up and exploiting those contradictions. And the other side already understands it. The other side has already understood it. Anyone who was in the streets had to see, in my view, how uncomfortably easy it was for those vigilante fascist crews, those vigilante MAGA crews that had fascists hidden in them or something like that, right? And by fascists in this case, I mean people who are openly affiliated with, with unapologetically fascist formations like Patriot Front or, yeah. or, or what have you, right? Um, right? How, how, how seamless that transition was for them to be let into the space yeah, would typically be controlled by the state and the state monopoly on violence. And this this has not changed. In in fact, it has perhaps changed in form, where we are seeing the deployment of the more classically neoliberal rhetoric of concern for public safety, of concern for health and well being, of concern for growth and prosperity, being more in a very liberal sort of way, being what masks the the persistent violence that that we still see. 
I think it's 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 so plainly apparent here. You know, I could talk about the the way, for example, that survival programs, mutual aid projects, continue to be, uh, and the people that they support uh, are now renewed uh, targets of increasing oppression by both state and non-state actors. Uh, that may be a better topic for another part of the conversation. But all of that is just to say that that we see that the the forces that that were always arrayed have arrayed themselves in a way that is disturbingly more effective or that suggests they're, they're thinking through problems or trying to think through problems and find solutions. And we need to do them one better and find those fucking solutions first. Yeah. Hey, amen. Um, well, I mean, I you did a one, great job. Oh, go ahead. I was going to add one more thing to that, that like, it was just uh, something I remembered from uh, the uprising here that uh, his uh, points reminded me of one specific thing, but like when Manhattan was totally, empty would because like it was during the lockdown the coronavirus lockdown so manhattan was like a ghost town which was something no one ever really seen so when the uprising was in full swing you had like it was really just radicals outside people who were like fighting and the police were out there but then there were also lone fascists who were there like for instance there are a lot of attempted car attacks when we were out in the streets then and that's kind of like what i was thinking about like this whole notion of like civil war and conflict is that like it's an ongoing thing, like the comrade said, it's like a latent thing within the society and it's just like bubbling up in more extreme facets now. So it's like I had actually forgotten about the, how intense that was, how many attempts on everyone's life there was during these demos. And it's just like it's become a more normalized part of uh, society now. So it's like it's an ongoing thing and it's also bubbling over into a really uh, extreme you know, um, conflict now. But. I just wanted to add that in. I totally forgotten about it. Oh, I really appreciate that. I mean, as you said that, I was I was reminded of how, you know, a lot of what we faced out here was like lone fascists trying to kill people. Yeah. Um, that was the actually the thing we were most worried about. Um mm-hmm. in in most of our security around direct action was like, how do you protect folks? Um yeah, wow, yeah, great point. Um, did, did you have anything else you wanted to add, Christy? Just because I, I I do want to put it into the conversation here, um, and this this might be a transition into into talking about the necessity of survival programs, mutual aid, how this kind of fits into the larger sort of revolutionary picture. Um, but I, I I do think that it's 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 really worth noting that we are seeing, uh, and this is not to say that that our neighbors have not experienced this this horrific kind of violence before. I mean, the average life expectancy of your unhoused individual is is the age of fifty, um, and and that's on the higher end. Right. We're actually seeing, I would argue, in much the same way we saw it happening in the beginning, um, fascist, crypto fascist and para fascist forces aligning themselves against mutual aid projects, not simply for the purpose or for the fact because of the fact that, you know, it's leftists who are organizing them, but because it is it is these projects that seek to support and build solidarity with and, and stand alongside with those members of our community that they think don't have a right to exist. Right. And, mm-hmm. and our neighbors, the, the vast majority of whom are are, you know, Black and brown folks as well, by virtue of how white supremacist uh, uh, you know, ideas, white supremacist policies continue to permeate and percolate down from the high, higher echelons of the capitalist state. Right, we we are seeing right um, fascist vigilantes now talking about clearing encampments. Right, mm-hmm. about what garbage it is that people come and try and give quote unquote these people food. Right, yeah. there, there was a case in San Diego where four people, four unhoused neighbors, were were murdered by a car attack. Not unlike the type of car attack that you would see at a demonstration by lone wolf type fascist or single actor fascist like that, 
right? Um, there, there is, there is, uh, of course, the the instances that we've seen most recently at Echo Park, um, as well as threats of violence to our unhoused neighbors in, in parts of, of North Orange County and South Orange County, right? That that speak to not only are we seeing these forces aligning in a very new and disturbing way, or I shouldn't say it's a totally new way, but in a way that's different and disturbing and is worth paying attention to. Um, but that, that how they're trying to kind of problem solve for those issues I mentioned involves targeting um, you know, the, the very folks that, 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 we, that we are to support and the very work that it is we do in supporting our community and our neighbors. And I think it's, it's really, really important that we talk about you know, the very quotidian and everyday nature of that, right? This is, this is something that is able to, to mask fascist violence very, very carefully, I think, because of how you know, the sort of mainstream political discourse in particular, um, where we are in, in, in California, right, is, is unapologetically, unapologetically uh, genocidal. Um, and, and eugenicist in, in its approach to to trying to quote unquote address um, the support needed by our unhoused neighbors. Uh, and that was perfectly put, uh, Chrissy. You know, it's it's like the same language and same tactic we see in Santana is the same language and tactic we see in LA. Same language and tactic we see in Sacramento. Like it, there is. Um, a uniformity to, to how this, this all looks. Um, so, and, and you kind of did this yourself, but maybe we can use this now as a, as an opportunity to bridge over and talk about like, you know, like from our own work in the field and conversations with y'all, like seeing this importance and necessity of mutual aid and survival programs. Um, I wonder if you both could, could speak maybe a little bit more to that, uh, fleshing out what you said, Christy, and then and Malik. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll keep it a little brief, but um, yeah, I think that uh, like survival programs and whatnot, they have a really important role in that, like, how should I put this one? They really, uh, they help establish solidarity amongst people in say a given place. Like in Brooklyn, when we do like uh, food giveaways, it helps people understand like, you know, what we're fighting for. We always have literature out. It like builds community, which is really um, important for what we're doing. Um, it also, it's like, uh, it shows that we have like a uh, multifaceted project that there are different like scales and scopes in that. It's not like all like, uh, it's not like all graffiti. It's not all education. It's not all like militancy. It's like tied in together. One thing I think I'd like to see happen more personally is that like, I'd like to see uh, a lot of the mutual aid projects around the country tied in closer to uh, militant formation. So the separation isn't that, that clear. And so, so the separation is like, that people realize that they're all part and parcel of the same thing. Um, some people do that really well, I think. But um, and the only reason I'm making that distinction, I think, is because here in New York, it seems that a lot of like these NGO and liberal nonprofity types have really kind of co-opted a lot of it. And that like there was like AOC was out at one uh, space handing out groceries with people and stuff recently. So it's like there's a uh, there's a lot of uh, contradictions that come along with some of it, but um it's really important and it's really important for uh, radicals to be at the forefront of doing things like that. But um, I think our, my comrade has a lot of really important points about this too, though. Yeah. So thank you for that, Malik. Um, uh -huh. I just, uh, you know, to begin with um, fundamentally, you know, I think that certainly it's about, you know, that these, these survival programs are, are about building solidarity. Um, but before, you know, I, I reemphasize that and add to it, I, I want to mention, I to emphasize that notion of survival. It, it is survival, 
this 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 is this is not a game you know this this i think is is a part of what differentiates you know a, a radical commitment to the work as as one agent of revolutionarily transformative social change versus you know a volunteer with an ngo or someone who sits on a board of a 501c or something like that now as a part of my own radicalization process i i did work feeding hungry people with nonprofit organizations you know um i, I did that kind of work uh, but that being said, you know this 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 cannot be. And this is where mutual aid programs, survival programs, are of course different. And this I don't think is anything necessarily revelatory to the folks who are who are who are who are on the show now, who are listening to the podcast, right? But it is it is it is not about repairing the system, all right? It is about it is about actively challenging the system and positing something better. And in building this solidarity, right? It's it's also about building very very concrete material resource networks. Right, that that working and and oppressed people can support and sustain themselves, and and helping develop those networks, helping build autonomous neighborhood councils through mutual aid projects. Right, that is so super crucial. It's a very integral part of people stepping into their own autonomy. And this gets to, I think, the the second portion of of what uh, the comrade mentioned, which was that you know once people step into that space, right, as we built that trust, you know, we we owe you know, continuing to to stand alongside them to provide perspectives that, that will aid and support that revolutionarily a liberatory process. And, and this I think is 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 an integral part of, of what we're what we're even seeing now, right? Where there was a time when people were extremely eager to volunteer because COVID was going to be over, no problem. Now they're mainstream media and you know arrayed alongside the apparatus of the capitalist state, they're saying, hey, everything is fine and people want to an extent to go back to normal because it's terrifying and scary and, and unsure. But all of that being said, it is, it is the, the, the I, I hesitate to use uh, sort of spatial metaphors that are kind of inherently hierarchical, but it is that kind of long, deep, deep, deeper, longstanding political perspective or a desire, a recognition of the fact, a desire to understand and a recognition of the fact that, that these problems, although very much about a particular time and place, are problems that that are persistent and are recurring and are part of larger systemic issues that require immediate and more militant confrontation. And you know, this type of work I think is, is a really great entree into that because to do this work is to a certain extent to confront the state, right? You work without permits, you work without licenses, hypothetically speaking, that kind of thing, right? And so you are criminalized by the state for simply trying to feed a hungry person for simply recognizing another human being is a human being and treating them with dignity and respect. What does that say about the value of the state? Right. Obviously we need to tear it down and build something better. Thank you. Thank you both for that. I mean, uh, Chrissy, I'll, I'll just speak personally for a second. Um, Cause what, what you said really, uh, really touched me and uh, like how central um, mutual aid and survival programs are at revealing these contradictions um, that can sort of impede our path um, along this process of consciousness, mm-hmm. um, being aware. Uh, and I think, I think mutual aid really does have a revolutionary potential in that. Um, but but uh, also seeing how simple it is for like the sort of neoliberal apparatus to co-opt that um, it's been really powerful, I think, in our own work in Orange County. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so I, I apologize. That was sort of a run on. Uh, let me let me spin um, into our next question, uh, and and maybe maybe you both feel that we've we've spoken about this, but uh, maybe if you if you have a little bit more to add um, about RAM and uh, calls for defense formation. Okay, yeah, I can add a few things. I guess we did touch on it a little bit, but um, a few months ago we put out a call for people to form a revolutionary abolitionist fronts, which were. Uh, it was a call for people to form defense groups in their neighborhoods to, uh, to um, one, prepare for upheavals, but also two, to um, help protect people in community spaces and things like that that uh, have the potential to be targeted by fascists or reactionaries or the state. Um, we figured after, especially within the lead up to the Capitol riot and um, also with the wave of fascist violence that's been going around the country, that um, we needed to all position ourselves way closer into communities to um, could to help network and help one to put our bodies on the line, but also to help encourage people to autonomously form defense groups. Um, so we're trying to uh, reach out. We've been reaching out to like mosques, um, to local community centers, to uh, to uh, black churches, to um, places where it's very likely people may be targeted. And clearly, it's like not necessarily possible to prevent something like where that attack in Atlanta, for instance, it would have been impossible for some, for any of us to like prevent something like that. But the idea of building larger community, larger networks where people are aware of the problem and the threat and then start organizing from that uh, reality. It's like a potential to build a stronger, um, stronger community and stronger movement. So, uh, yeah, we think that like, that's one of the primary things that revolutionaries should be doing today is, uh, really reaching out and building, uh, you know, defense structures with people in their neighborhoods and in their cities and stuff. So I don't have a whole lot to add um, on this particular topic. Uh, personally, not, personally, not that I don't think it is a, a very worthwhile and, and relevant and important point of discussion in and of itself. I mean, I think the fact that we've already said so much about it speaks to yeah. <laughs> its centrality and, and its importance. I mean, realistically, you know, um, in another in another part of my organizing work, I was I was very active with the Redneck Revolt John Brown Gun Club Network, and what brought me into that work, speaking personally, was was seeing images um, of armed leftists who were arrayed in formation, who were kitted up, who seemed to, relative to other folks, have an idea of what they were doing or were trying to get an idea of what they were doing. And it wasn't anything other than for me initially saying, ah, we are finally starting to remember. Because that is an integral part of the radical left tradition that I think needs to be made more front and center. And that is uh, the capacity for radical community defense. It is incredibly, incredibly crucial. And I think it goes hand in hand with the mutual aid work itself, right? As we've seen, the communities that we're supporting are also the communities who are directly experiencing police terrorism. So our part of that mutual aid work, right, is, is, is establishing these councils where, you know, real conversations about, you know, concrete tactical approaches can be had, right? There is a way in which the mainstream political discourse is set so that, there's always this, this sort of specter or idea of state violence, overt state violence as a reality. But there's also a way in which uh, oftentimes I feel like we've been habituated to assume, ah, it happens, but it will not happen here. Yeah. It will happen, but it won't happen to me. I yeah. mean, 
you know, I, I've had conversations with folks who, you know, they, they were, they, they were, they were like literally like kettle after kettle in a row. You see the cops getting in the formation. Oh, they did that to me in Long Beach. They won't do it to me here. I, I don't really understand why you think that's the case, unless there's something about the geography of this particular space that makes you feel like the kettle isn't as much of a threat. Um, but all of that is just to say, right, these are, these, when, when we, when we, you know, immerse ourselves in how to sort of approach and answer these, these very, very granular tactical questions, uh, it can only be in that game um, in, in, so, in, in, so, in so many ways. And I think if we talk about taking, you know, the mutual aid projects and connecting them to survival programs and connecting them to more militant perspectives, that kind of defensive formation becomes even more essential because as we've seen that tension, I would argue, between, you know, a very overt, unapologetic militancy and, you know, a, a, a kind of connected to an organization and then programs um, that were very public facing, that were open and that seemed to have the appearance of, you know, the work of any charitable organization. Um, and of course, the fact that those kinds of programs were where and through which infiltration uh, by the state and non-state actors happened most consistently for organizations like the Panthers, right? How to, how to negotiate that tension um, is, is, is an ongoing and persistently crucial question along with so many others that I'm not sure I have answers to, but I think is worth trying to think about. Uh, <laughs> uh, Hopefully that made sense. I don't know if my head wants to pull any of that back. Or... No, that made total sense. Um, yeah. Malik, do you have anything you want to add? Oh, no, no, I think that was good. <laughs> uh, so maybe just uh, wrapping up here. Sorry, we, we kind of went on for a while, but this was absolutely amazing. Um uh maybe telling us about uh jailhouse lawyers and the national shut them down demos okay yeah this is something we've been like uh helping promote um pretty seriously um so this year uh the jailhouse lawyers speak which is uh it's a collective of people um who are currently incarcerated who are held by the state and they have uh different members all over the country and they're calling for uh demonstrations to call um, demonstrations on August 21st and September 9th. Um, uh, they're called, it's called National Shut Them Down Actions, where they want to draw attention to um, these space of detention, to prisons, to ICE facilities, to uh, universities that support use prison labor and use prison like uh, like uh, items that were made from prison labor, I should say. Um, so the two days have significance in that August 21st was the day that George Jackson was killed by the uh, police during his uh, attempted escape, his attempted liberation. And August 21st is also the day of the, um, of the launching of the Nat Turner Rebellion, um, while September 9th is the day of the Attica Uprising. So on these two days, they're calling for people to take the streets to draw attention to um, prison slavery and um, the mistreatment they've been uh, getting inside and uh, a lot of the COVID-related suffering that's been going on inside. Um, so yeah, if you have a collective or um, an organization, definitely try to uh, get in contact with them or you can get in contact with us and we'll help you get in contact with them and organize a, a demo outside of a local prison, uh, precinct, anywhere that the pigs are and shouldn't be, which is everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah, they would, we <laughs> would like you to, to, um, you know, to turn up those few days. Um, we also, uh, our collective has been sending in letters um, we've mailed out, I think, like 300 letters now uh, into prisons to tell people about that day of action. So maybe people could take um, 
autonomous actions inside, or at least know that people outside are um, are fighting in there for them and fighting for their liberation, for liberation for them and for everyone else. So, yeah, these are all different things that people could participate in in the next few months and in the lead up to it. That's fucking awesome. Cool, thanks. Um, Chrissy, did you have anything you wanted to add? Oh, just really quickly, because I want to, you know, kind of make sure that the, the, the call from jailhouse lawyers is, is front and center. You know, the, the work that, that these folks have been doing, jailhouse lawyers, you know, not to say that there aren't other formations doing similar work. The prisoners aren't spontaneously self-organizing or organizing. I mean, you know, as long as prisons have existed, there have been uprisings and rebellions by prisoners. Um, but all of that is just to say, like, that, I, you know, this, this concerted uh, uh, effort to build a strong inside outside relationship, right? With, with organized, with the prisoner class organized on the inside to use the public and very short quarter, short quarter collective language with folks on the outside, right? I mean, if you look at some of the, the most successful forms of, of struggle against the brutality of the carceral state, it, it has been when there has been a very, very strong relationship between folks on the outside and folks on the inside along political lines. And I think that, you know, what we've already seen jailhouse lawyers put together, um, what we've done and what I think is coming is, is, is again, integral in, in developing those kinds of defense networks and, and, and revolutionary capabilities that, you know, we've been talking about. Uh, I really, I really appreciate um, all of that. That that was really amazing. Um, so maybe, how how do you how do you both feel here? Was is there anything else you'd like to to add before we we wrap everything up? Just broadly on anything else? Um, no, I mean I'd say you know um, you could check us out uh, at our website revolutionaryabolition.org or on our Twitter handle. Uh, Revolution Abolition NYC on Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure if people saw this, but uh, we've been consistently thrown off of social media, so we don't really expect to be on there much longer. Um, yeah, a lot of our accounts are just constantly keep getting shut down. So you know, you should probably check out our site, Revolutionary Abolition, because uh, you know the social media gods aren't feeling us too much, which makes us kind of <laughs> happy. <laughs> you know, but you think um, you're doing something right? Yeah, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for giving us this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, please, please check out, uh, everything Ram. Uh, do you want to say that website one more time? Yeah, it's uh, revolutionaryabolition.org. And, um, you could also check us at Ram underscore abolition on Instagram too, on IG. Okay, perfect. And, uh, we'll throw those in the show notes. Uh, Chrissy, did you have anything you wanted to plug? before we head off or uh, not really check 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 ram out and continue to help build if you haven't started building already the national shut them down demonstration stand in solidarity with self-organized prisoners and let's burn this motherfucker down yeah yeah <laughs> fuck yes all right y'all thank you both so much thank you for having thank us you. thank you I know some of y'all here today because y'all think jail is cool. But see, y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. I ain't cool about jail, nigga. Cool I've been here 10 years and I ain't never getting out. Never. I ain't do much, just kill somebody. Yeah. It ain't like the nigga ain't have it coming. He sure did. See, y'all think it's just about us in here. But this is about an oppressive yeah. system designed to keep niggas down. Y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. 
What about you, little nigga? You know about that? Yes. Oh, you know about that? Tell me what you know about that. Tell me what you think about that. The prison industrial complex is a system situated at the intersection of government and private interests. It uses prisons as a solution to social, political, and economic problems. It includes human rights violations, the death penalty, slave labor, policing, courts, the media, political prisoners, and the elimination of dissent. Nigga, did you just say what I was trying to say, but smarter? 